proximity is, in fact, the reason that you and I are here together again, discussing a series of cases that I wanted to assure myself weren't related to the case that I covered last season. Given how I left you all with my opinion that those homicides could conceivably be the work of a serial offender, if, capital I, capital F, you subscribe to the notion that the Dumois family was chosen that day at random. We certainly don't know that to be true, but I told you at the end of season 16 that I would look at some other unsolved cases from the same area to see if I could find any other homicides that I believed could have been committed by the same offender. I am not generally disposed to researching serial killer cases. I don't feel remotely qualified. They're too meandering and confusing for me. Too many sets of facts to keep straight, too many law enforcement agencies. I personally prefer to dig into one case at a time and absorb all the evidence, take my time, get it straight in my mind over a period of months, and then present it to you in a clear and concise way. Obviously with the hope that someone listening will hear something that leads them to call police with a new tip. That's the whole point of what I do. Second only to giving this platform over to family and friends. Secondary victims and those involved with these cases, a space to talk about the violence that has affected their lives and help them if I can work through getting some answers. I certainly did not intend on the case last season to lead me into this next series of cases, but here we are. And regardless of whether I decided in each case that they may or may not be related, I will give each of these the coverage that they deserve because all of them are still, decades later, unsolved. So now we're gonna talk about the Michelsons in Longboat Key, Florida. 5134 Gulf of Mexico Drive in 1974 was the home of Norman and Isabel Michelson, known to their friends as Pat and Mike, ages 67 and 62, respectively. Their home sat on the bay side of Longboat Key, a barrier island along the west coast of Florida, and it's about seven or eight miles from Holmes Beach, the area that I visited while doing research on last season's cases, the Kingfish Boat Ramp murders. Anna Maria sits at the top of that island. You can drive south through Holmes Beach and then Bradenton Beach, past Coquina Beach, and end up in Longboat Key just minutes later. This lovely couple that I'm going to talk to you about, the Michelsons, well, they were well known in Florida's Manatee County. They were active in local politics. They owned a citrus grove and a very successful fruit shipping business. Mrs. Michelson was a member of the Manatee Junior College Board of Trustees, and Mr. Michelson was active in reorganizing the old Bradenton Yacht Club. The couple moved to Bradenton after Mr. Michelson left the Army, shortly after World War II. During that time, Mrs. Michelson taught in the local school system, and Mr. Michelson worked to build the citrus business. They had no children, which meant they had plenty of time to devote to local politics, their thriving business, and the community. It seems that community service was important to both of them. Mrs. Michelson was the chairman of the local Republican Party and successfully shepherded all but one 
of the county Republicans on the ticket in 1960 into office. For 24 and a half years, the Michelsons ran their 13-acre citrus grove and shipping business that were located on the banks of Warner's Bayou in Bradenton. Their citrus grove was aptly named Michelson's Grove, and when they moved there in 1946, what they found were oranges, tangerines, grapefruit, so plentiful that they believed others would want what they had. Northerners from colder climates who didn't have a backyard that was rife with trees literally dripping with the nectar of the gods. They decided to go into the citrus gift-packing business, and something that they did I found was particularly savvy. They advertised in Fortune magazine, the idea being that it cost more to have fruit shipped than to just go to your local supermarket, and although you get what you pay for, they needed to target people who could pay for what they were selling. Maybe even people who like to send gift baskets to clients. Obviously, the Michelsons also sold to locals, but for the shipping business to catch on, they needed to chum a couple different bodies of water, hence the Fortune magazine ad. It took a little while to get the oranges rolling, but once they did, there was no turning back. By the time they sold that grove in 1971, to a group of doctors who would later subdivide the land for building homes, the price tag was $86,000. And while they had sold most of the acreage, some of it remained with trees that bore fruit, so they maintained an arrangement to have their mail-order packages prepared for shipment by another fruit shipper in Florida. Shortly thereafter, the Michelsons moved to their bayfront home on Longboat Key. The December 1972 issue of the Bradenton Herald lists the sale. The Michelsons purchased the home for the price of $75,000. So, as I looked over the old news articles, what I learned is that Mrs. Michelson, in particular, appears to have been a local force to be reckoned with in Republican politics. I found a picture of her in the Bradenton Herald where she stood toe-to-toe and eye-to-eye with a young Richard Nixon her right hand clasped in his in greeting, her left hand holding her clutch purse at her hip. She was a tiny little woman with her hair pulled back in a tight chignon against the nape of her neck, and she wore a pair of those metal horn-rimmed glasses that had me itching with jealousy. You can't get them like that anymore. They were great. And in that picture, her face is inches from that of the infamous president's face, and she looks more like a secretary of state or a foreign diplomat who is meeting a peer. She's clearly comfortable with the exchange. She looks like a woman who could get things done, and let me tell you, I am here for that. What I get from that image is no nonsense, and I would later learn during my research that that was probably a very apt description of her. In a news article about her being honored by the Manatee Junior College Board of Trustees after her death, she was called a, quote, guiding influence. The article says, quote, Mrs. Michelson had high standards for herself, and she conveyed the message that the achievement of excellence was expected from others. Now, I'm highlighting this for a reason. Well, a couple reasons. First, because as a successful woman in the 1960s, being able to break into that good old boys club of politics and basically slay, as the kids nowadays say, I think that deserves recognition, just on its own. 
But I also believe that it is an important point for us to file away when we begin discussing the details of the case, particularly the differences in how the Michelsons were killed. While his murder was hands-off, hers was hands-on. That might mean something or it might not, so let's just stick a pin in that and we'll circle back to it later. So, the Michelsons were expecting visitors on February 22, 1974. Two couples that showed up at around 5 p.m., but when they knocked on the front door of their Bayside home, there was no answer. Seeing the door was unlocked, they went inside and called out to the couple. Still, no answer. They couldn't find either of them. And then they thought, well, maybe they're out back. The couple did enjoy time in their backyard with a lovely view of the bay, and they had a pool back there. So they went around the house into the backyard, and it was then that they found Mr. Michelson laying in the yard face up with his arms outstretched above his head. The first responder got the initial call at 5.08 p.m. while on patrol. A few minutes later, while en route, he received another more urgent call, telling him to, quote, make it a hot run, there may have been foul play. Now, I don't imagine they get a lot of calls like that in Longboat Key now, never mind in 1974. Officer Bell arrived at 5.16 p.m., and the rescue squad was already there, assessing Mr. Michelson. They told him that there was a body on the north side of the residence, which appeared to have a gunshot wound. He walked over to find a white male lying face up, with his arms outstretched to the east, as if he had been dragged by the ankles. There appeared to be an entrance wound on his left chest, with a possible exit wound on the back of the right side. His body was rigid and cold, indicating that he had been dead for some time. The officer then went immediately inside the house to phone the dispatcher and advise him to contact the Longboat Key police chief, another officer, the medical examiner, and the state's attorney's office. At that time, he was told that the chief had already been notified and was on the way. Then he began a cursory check of the rest of the house, accompanied by two of the rescue squad members. They were still looking for Mrs. Michelson. They noticed a trail of blood through the garage, but everything else downstairs appeared to be undisturbed. When they proceeded to the second floor, the officer noticed a small streak of blood near the top of the stairway upstairs on the wall. They found two bedrooms upstairs. In the master bedroom, the officer noticed blood on the floor around one of the beds, which was the one closest to the door, and it was noted that this room contained two beds. They would later learn that the Michelsons slept in separate beds because Mr. Michelson snored loudly and he made it hard for Mrs. Michelson to sleep. There were no covers or sheets on the bed closest to the door, which was identified as Mr. Michelson's bed. There were two visible stains on the mattress, as well as some bedclothes on the other maid bed that appeared to have blood stains on them. All of the other rooms upstairs appeared normal. The bathroom, the dressing room, the spare bedroom, and an office-slash-den area. Nothing there seemed amiss and no signs of anyone else in the house. So where was Mrs. Michelson? 
By this time, a group of neighbors had gathered at the front door and they were asking questions, along with the horrified friends who had come for dinner and landed themselves smack in the middle of a murder mystery. When questioned, these friends told police that their dinner plans had been made the previous night by telephone, and this appears to be the last time that anyone spoke with the Michelsons. Officer Bell then had the rescue squad rope off the area around the house and around the body in the yard. Then he began taking Polaroid photos of the area. When the police chief arrived, he went with him back through the house, and at that point they found Mr. Michelson's driver's license in his billfold, which was located in the officer den area upstairs. Mrs. Michelson's purse was also located on the dressing table next to the upstairs bathroom and in it they found several forms of identification for her. The report then says, quote, A short while later, at about 6.30 p.m., Chief McCammon came by with the keys to the automobile parked in the garage, a 1974 Buick Electra 225. McCammon himself said, quote, I went back down and I went into the garage where I found the Michelson's car, and I got a feeling about that car. And I went back and I got the keys to the car from the upstairs room. I went back down and I unlocked the trunk. While the report doesn't state which room he found the keys in, the chief said the upstairs room, not bedroom. So it's likely that it came from the same area where Mr. Michelson's wallet was located, in that office or den area. They never found another copy of the car keys nor were they able to confirm whether another copy of that car key existed. And that's important, and we'll discuss that a little bit later. But what they found in the trunk when it was opened was Mrs. Michelson. The report notes that, quote, one puncture-type wound could be seen on Mrs. Michelson, but because of the bloody condition of the body, we could not look further. It was at this point that Officer Bill ran out of film, so he had to leave the scene and drive back to the station, where he then picked up more film and flashbulbs. On his way back to the Michelson residence, he picked up state attorneys Jim Slater and Rick DeFuria of the Sarasota office and brought them back to the crime scene with him. When he returned to the residence, he began taking pictures of Mrs. Michelson's body, as well as more pictures inside the house. And once the photography of the bodies was complete, they were released for transport to the Manatee Memorial Hospital morgue. This next part, to me, is interesting. Officer Bill noted this in his report, quote, I removed a pair of glasses, one diamond-shaped ring from the right hand, a wedding ring with four diamonds, and a single diamond engagement ring from the left hand of Mrs. Michelson. There was an Omega watch on Mr. Michelson's arm. All these items were turned over to Officer Coons for safekeeping. So there's a couple things that we can glean from this. First, if burglary were the motive, you might have expected Mrs. Michelson's rings to have been removed. But given that she was in the trunk of the vehicle, it's also possible that the perpetrator or perpetrators planned to take the vehicle with them and could have retrieved those items from her body later. I'm more interested in the fact that the officer says that he removed her glasses. I find myself wondering how those managed to stay on her face, apparently undamaged, during her attack and subsequent placement into the trunk. 
now might be a good time to address how these two victims were killed. Dr. Lehman, the medical examiner, had come to the scene, made a cursory examination of Mr. Michelson's body, and then left, and had to come back when Mrs. Michelson's body was later found in the trunk. It would eventually be determined that the Michelsons had been dead from 8 to 16 hours. Mrs. Michelson died from strangulation caused by a fractured larynx, although how that occurred would be up for debate. She also had a non-fatal stab wound to the right chest area, which would later be described as superficial by the police chief. The knife handle was found under the bed upstairs. One of the officers, while checking out a blood-spattered sheet that was balled up and left in the garage area, discovered what appeared to be the missing knife blade, a six-inch blade covered with blood missing its handle. Nothing similar to the design on this knife was found in the Michelson's kitchen, but I'm not sure that's indicative of much because you wouldn't find a bunch of matching cutlery if you checked my house. I've got a bunch of single pieces and a lot of my knives don't match. What they did have, though, was both pieces of one of the murder weapons found in different areas. The question is how the handle would wind up under the bed upstairs if Mrs. Michelson was attacked downstairs. To me, it makes more sense if the handle was found under the bed upstairs and the broken off blade was found inside the sheets that also originated from upstairs. That whole knife probably made it upstairs at some point, which would point more toward Mrs. Michelson being attacked upstairs like her husband rather than downstairs. Mr. Michelson had two bullet wounds one entering through his left chest and exiting through the right rear back with a bullet lodged in the mattress and the other was an entrance wound in his back that lodged under his skin. Both projectiles crossed paths through his heart. So one shot in the front and one shot in the back. Does this mean that his body was in motion at the time? Perhaps he was awakened, moved his body in reaction to whatever woke him, and the shots occurred as he was rolling over or moving in the bed. Law enforcement does believe he was shot upstairs while in his bed, and that seems reasonable. He was found wearing his bed clothes, the stains were on his bed, and the bedding from his bed was missing, which seems to indicate that he was dragged downstairs on that bedding. Mr. Michelson was a big man. That would be a viable way of getting his body downstairs, regardless of whether there was one or more perpetrators carrying a large man downstairs would be more difficult even for two people than simply dragging him. However, it was noted that the stairs were covered with light carpet and no blood was found on that carpet, just a small smudge on the wall at the top of the stairs. A 22 caliber slug was recovered that night from Mr. Michelson and the FDLE would later determine that it had been fired from a rifle, which is another strange detail, given that most criminals prefer guns that are easily concealable. Officer Coons, who accompanied Officer Bell on his second pass through the house, wrote this in the report. It seemed that Mr. Michelson was dragged out of the bedroom on a sheet or mattress cover, down the stairs, out the front door into the garage, 
through an aluminum door and out a louvered doorway to the side of the building. And about 15 more feet east where he was left, feet facing the bay and on his back. For whatever reason, they decide to keep going through the garage, out a side door, heading into the backyard where Mr. Michelson was finally abandoned for reasons unknown. Is it possible that the initial idea was to put his body in the trunk, but once the perpetrator or perpetrators got him into the garage, they realized they couldn't lift him physically into the trunk? And that's what led to this long way around getting Mr. Michelson outside. Because if that was the initial intent to bring him out the back, there were other exits in the house that led directly into the backyard. What happened with Mrs. Michelson is even less clear than what happened to her husband. Police are not even sure where in the house she initially encountered the perpetrator. Remember, there's no blood anywhere except for the garage in that one spot upstairs and in the bedroom. Nothing downstairs. Mrs. Michelson had a non-fatal stab wound and she died from strangulation caused by a fractured larynx. Compared to the less hands-on attack of her husband who was shot, whoever attacked Mrs. Michelson used a physical assault and somewhere in there, a knife was used. In the scenario that law enforcement put forth to the media initially, her larynx could have been crushed by having been grabbed from behind, kind of like a tight chokehold around the neck. A 1976 newspaper article said this is what law enforcement surmised had occurred. Quote, Mr. Michelson was in bed, apparently asleep, and his wife was downstairs. She had just turned off the television when the killer or killers entered quietly through a side door. The killer grabbed her from behind with one arm and stabbed her. She slumped to the floor, dead. The killer climbed the steps and shot Mr. Michelson with a 22 caliber rifle the killer must have brought with him. And this is just one theory that they had at the time, based on the little information and evidence that they had. When I recently spoke to the Longboat Key police captain about the case, he said that it was his opinion that there could have been two perpetrators, given that there were two weapons. But it was never established whether the knife was found in the home or brought there by a perpetrator. And this knife, it was described as a household paring knife, which would to me seem an odd choice for a perpetrator to bring to a crime scene. But what doesn't make sense to me is if these two perpetrators entered the home together, one already armed with a shotgun, and they encountered Mrs. Michelson downstairs first, why wasn't she just shot? It's hard for me to picture two perpetrators who would enter the home, one with a long gun, and the other with a paring knife, unless we're talking about youthful, stupid offenders. In that case, you expect to see dumb choices or strung out offenders on drugs that are there to steal something, but there was no suggestion of anything being stolen from the house. I'm personally not yet convinced that there were two perpetrators. Here's why. There was a bar-type eating area in the kitchen that was found set with two plates, coffee cups, and silverware for breakfast, presumably. Through investigation, it was learned that the habit of Mrs. Michelson before going to bed was to set the morning table. So I wonder if it's possible that the paring knife was set out there. Maybe they used it to cut fruit or used for butter on their toast. In this scenario, during the assault, the perpetrator attacking Mrs. Michelson around the neck could have grabbed it 
because it was close. Or she could have grabbed it to defend herself. If that's the case, that might mean the killer encountered her around the kitchen area where it was within grabbing distance of either of them. Maybe she heard something in the yard or in the garage as she was finishing up setting that morning breakfast table and she grabbed the knife and she ran upstairs to her husband. With what little we have, the possibilities are endless. As far as evidence, when I spoke to the police captain, he told me that, quote, they had a set of fingerprints that never matched anything. In the police report, there is a notation of them having found, quote, a fairly good print other than the bloody ones on the electric blanket control. The preliminary examination on the 22 slug indicated that it was most likely fired through a Marlin 22 caliber rifle, which I earlier mentioned seemed like an odd choice for someone to bring to a crime. Handguns are much easier to hide than long guns. The 22 Marlin is a weapon described this way on their website. Quote, its minimal recoil and relatively low noise make it ideal for recreational shooting, small game hunting, and pest control. I suppose that bad guys have to use the weapons that they've got, so maybe our bad guy only had this particular weapon at his disposal. The day after the bodies were found, Officer Bell went back to the residence with another officer to look at the beds and decide where the sheets had been taken from by the perpetrator. Presumably the sheets in question were the ones used to wrap up Miss Michelson because apparently Mr. Michelson was dragged downstairs wrapped in the bedding from his own bed. They found the rest of the beds in the house made. The guest bedroom had matching coverlets, but one of those beds was not fully made because according to the maid that was only done when they had company. In fact, she said that Mrs. Michelson usually slept in the guest room unless they had guests because Mr. Michelson had nasal problems and he snored quite loudly. Mrs. Michelson's bed in the guest room did not appear to have been slept in the previous night, which is why police must have surmised that she hadn't yet made it to bed that night. The mate to the extra sheets which had occasioned their visit that day were located in one of the tip-out bins in the bathroom where fresh linens were stored. It was then surmised by law enforcement that two sheets located by the police in the crime scene had been taken from the tip-out bin. And that's another telling thing. The perpetrators went into the bathroom, pulled the tip-out bin, found sheets, and apparently used them to wrap up Mrs. Michelson. That might also indicate that she had been felled upstairs and they wrapped her upstairs and carried her down because there was no blood anywhere located downstairs. A ground search was done at the Michelson's property and a silver-colored elephant keychain containing one key was found in the front yard about 25 yards south of the driveway. That key fit the front door and was later identified by the maid as the key ring that was usually in the lock inside the front door. If there was a second set of car keys, police never located them. That point alone seems to indicate one of three things. The perpetrator had used the set that they found upstairs to unlock the trunk before putting Mrs. Michelson inside and then put the keys back upstairs, or much more likely, the Buick was unlocked in the garage and the perpetrator had to pop the trunk via the latch inside the car, 
obviously meaning they would have touched multiple areas on the car, including possibly the door to open it. The third possibility is that there was an extra set of keys and those car keys ended up removed from the home by the perpetrator and were never found. To me, it would seem strange that there would only be one set of vehicle keys for the household if that was the only vehicle that they had. And here's another interesting thing that I noted. While checking the south side yard on that day that they found those keys outside, they found a side door of the house unlocked. So Officer Bell entered the residence, looked around and found that everything appeared to have been as they had left it the day before, and then secured that door from inside, meaning he locked it, went out the front door and locked that door, the front door, with a key that he had found on the hook beside the south door. That statement in the report left me wondering a couple things. Did police literally forget to lock that south door when they secured the premises the night before, meaning they left the crime scene unlocked? Or did someone have a key and re-entered the crime scene and didn't lock it when they left? Officer Bell apparently found a key that worked the front door hanging on a hook beside the south door. This would have to be a second copy because the elephant key that they found outside on that key ring was turned over to the police chief before Officer Bell did his walkthrough of the house and re-securing it. So this is a separate key that locked the front door, a second copy, in addition to the one on the elephant key ring that they found in the yard. This means that they had at least two keys to the front door, one on that elephant key ring and the other hanging by the south door. So what about the car keys? As an example, I have two sets of keys for every vehicle owned by the occupants of my household. One set stays on the person who drives each vehicle regularly. And each duplicate set is on a key hook in our kitchen. In case one set is lost or someone else in the house needs to use one of the other vehicles. And every person in my household has a copy of the house key. If where that key was found on a hook was a door off the garage, it's possible that anyone who had access to or had been in that garage knew there were extra keys kept there. And I believe that's important. The next day, day three, Officer Brown returned to the residence with Sully Hayes, the Michelson's maid. She cleaned their home every Thursday so she had just been there the day before their bodies were found. This is what the report says about that walkthrough. Quote, At the residence, we started in the kitchen area and went through all the rooms to see if Mrs. Hayes might notice anything missing or out of place. Mrs. Hayes stated that the kitchen and living room area were in the same order and nothing appeared to be missing. When we got to Mr. Michelson's den, I told Mrs. Hayes where Mr. Michelson's clothes were lying on the couch and on the chair by the door. Mrs. Hayes stated that he always folded his clothes and put them on the floor in the closet. When we entered the guest bedroom, she stated that Mrs. Michelson slept in here, in the bed closest to the door. Mrs. Hayes stated that the only time that she knows that Mrs. Michelson slept in the master bedroom was when they had company. The room was the same way as Mrs. Hayes had left it on Thursday. In the master bedroom, 
Mrs. Hayes stated that there was supposed to be another electric blanket control on the nightstand between the beds. The control that was missing belonged to the bed closest to the door, which was Mr. Michelson's bed. The only other thing that Mrs. Hayes noticed that was out of place was the radio on the shelf. She stated that the portable radio was kept on the bottom shelf, not the top shelf. So it looks like the maid recognized that the remote control to the electric blanket on Mr. Michelson's bed was missing. And that was the one that was obviously taken into custody by police at that point, because it was the one that had bloody fingerprints on it. In those first two days of the investigation, when police canvassed the neighborhood, there were two different people that neighbors seemed to suggest that police should speak to. One was the former owner of the Michelson's home. The other was one of the neighborhood boys. Both of these leads were first shared with police on the same day that the Michelson's bodies were discovered. A woman that had watched the house for the Michelson's the previous summer in 1973 while they were gone for six weeks said another neighbor had recently told her there had been some trouble with a boy being on the Michelson's property. Interestingly, a relative of that same neighborhood boy called one of the detectives to say that they should look into the former owner of the Michelson's home. Both of these names, the neighborhood boy and the former owner of the house, were brought up by multiple neighbors. Police Chief McCannon wrote up a report on his meeting with the former homeowner. He and Detective Coons met with him in Fort Myers on the third day after the bodies were found. The report says this individual was the builder of the home that the Michelsons lived in and was the person that sold it to them. They found him to be cooperative, completely lucid, well-spoken, and easily able to account for his whereabouts on Thursday and Friday. The former owner of the Michelsons' home spent Thursday evening in the company of his son, his wife, his son's lady friend, and several other people at a dinner and cocktail party at his son's home. He spent the night there sleeping, went to bed approximately 9 o'clock, and didn't get up till about 10 o'clock the next morning. This was confirmed by his wife and son, according to the police chief. That report ends with this line. Conclusion reached by Detective Coons and myself, Chief McCammon, are that is in no way connected with the homicides of Mr. and Mrs. Michelson on February 22, 1974, in the town of Longboat Key. Police spoke to a next-door neighbor of the Michelsons whose name was Mrs. Goodman. She said that the Sunday before the weekend of their deaths, Mrs. Michelson came over and mentioned that it was strange that the former owner of the Michelsons' home had supposedly been in the area but had not contacted her. This neighbor told police that they and the Michelsons were also good friends of hers, and she had not heard from the either. This witness also mentioned that Mrs. Michelson had talked to her about two weeks before the murders and appeared to be very upset. She said she was having a lot of trouble with the neighborhood boy and wanted to put a no trespassing sign on her property, but Mr. Michelson wouldn't let her. According to this neighbor, Mrs. Michelson told her this neighborhood boy kept walking around their property, sometimes in the company of one or more of his friends, and they were around the dock frequently, at different times of the day and night, and this upset Mrs. Michelson very much. The report says, quote, But according to the neighbor, 
Mr. Michelson was an easygoing gentleman and he didn't want to make an issue of it. The neighbor said she was giving this information to police because it was preying on her mind since Mrs. Michelson appeared to be very upset over the entire situation. In the next episode, you're going to hear from that neighborhood boy. Stay tuned.